Okay, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15 as we're continuing in our study. I know some of you are new today or have not been here, so we're going to do just a little bit of a review on where we're at. Um, this is the, the ending of Passion Week uh, in the time frame of Jesus' ministry. Um, this is after they have concluded the Lord's Supper and they've gone out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is giving some final words of instruction to His disciples prior to His betrayal and arrest and then crucifixion the following day. So this would be on Thursday evening of Passion Week, and He will be arrested sometime after this, during the evening hours, uh, and then He will be uh, tried and and convicted and crucified on the next day. So this, this is his final hours with his disciples prior to his uh, crucifixion. And so it's a very important time that John gives us in understanding the communication instruction that Jesus gives his disciples, much of which they do not grasp and understand the, 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 bra the, the gravity of it or the depth of what he is teaching them now, but they will understand it after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit indwells them and gives them understanding and reminds them of all the things that Jesus has conveyed to them at this time. But since we're looking back and we're also being a part of that, we can look back and, and give understanding as we, as we see the things that Jesus has taught them. Now, last week we were dealing with the first part of chapter 15 when we was talking about abiding in Him and all that that means as, uh, as Jesus is the vine, the true vine, the only source of eternal life, the only source of righteousness and standing before God. And you have to be born again to be abiding in Him. And all those who abide in Him bear fruit. And in other words, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is evident in them. And therefore, if you are claiming to be a Christian and there is no fruit, then you are a branch that is not abiding in the vine and you're not a true branch and therefore you are, are going to be cast away as those who claim to be followers of Christ but are not. And the example that Jesus gives them um, is that even though Judas was chosen by him to be one of his disciples, he was not really one of them because he went out from them and proved himself to be a son of Satan or a child of Satan and doing the work of Satan. So this morning we, we're going to finish up in chapter 15 as he's talking about the relationship of the disciples going forward with each other. And keep in mind, he's instructing his disciples that are going to be apostles so not everything he tells his disciples as apostles would apply to us individually, but the principles he gives are principles that we all can are supposed to live by. And so that's kind of what we're looking at. And so we'll, we'll begin again in verse 12, and uh, we'll start out with the verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment that I love, that this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Okay, so here he's talking about they're being appointed as apostles to lay the foundation for the church. And so he's laying this, this, this understanding down. He starts out by this commandment. This commandment is that you love one another. Now we understand that what happens when you are born of God is that you receive the nature of God, right? So you are dead in your trespass sins. When Adam and Eve sinned and therefore passed this state of sin or this this condemnation to all who are born or conceived and brought into the human world or the, the human race, you are all infected with this deadness that came from Adam. And so you have to be born again. And with the new birth, it is a new nature. It is a new you. You were dead in trespassing sins. You were completely away from God, cut off from God, you had no standing of righteousness, and you had no life that would exist with God forever. So when Adam and Eve were created, they were created as eternal souls. Different from the other parts of creation, 
the human life was, when God breathed into Adam the breath of life, he became a living soul. A living soul means that every human being will live forever somewhere. You're existing forever. But when Adam sinned, he was cut off from a relationship with God. He was cut off from a righteousness with God. And he had nothing in himself that would allow him to live with God forever. That means he would have to live apart from God forever. So death, in the sense of Adam and Eve's death, was a separation from God. The second death, recorded in Revelation chapter 20, at the great white throne judgment, all those that are great at the great white throne judgment, will be cast into the, etern- into the eternal lake of fire, which is the second death, which is the eternal separation from God with no means of ever changing that. And that's key, and that's very important to understand. With Adam's death, there is a means by which we can be brought from death to life, and that is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit when we are born again. So you will have to be born again to not go to the second death, which is the eternal separation from God. So as you live in this life, every person has the opportunity or the possibility to be transformed into new life by the work of the Holy Spirit. And without that work of the Holy Spirit, everyone will go to the great white throne judgment and everyone will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the eternal death, the second death, which is the eternal separation from God of which no one can be brought out of. Everybody understand that? So that's the condition of all humanity. When you're born into this world, you're born dead, separated from God, and the only hope you have is for the Spirit of God to bring you to life and cause you to be born again. And with the new birth, you you receive a nature that is God's nature in you. And that nature is perfect, it is holy, it is righteous. Now, our righteous standing before God is not in our new nature, it is in Jesus Christ. Okay, Our righteous standing is perfect because it is in Jesus Christ, but the nature we receive from the Spirit of God is also holy so that when we die in this flesh, our souls go immediately to heaven without having to be upgraded, without having to be changed, without having to be purified. Our souls are allowed to go straight to heaven because our souls that were created by the Spirit of God in us, our new nature is perfect and holy before God. Does that make sense? Okay. In that same process, we the, the sin nature is extracted. Okay, there's a, there, the, 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 the question between the sin nature and the, and the new nature is one people get confused about. You only have one nature at a time. Okay? You are who you are. You, before you're saved, you have a connection in Adam, and that's who you are. You are in Adam. And in Adam, you are separated from God. And your nature is to sin. In Adam, you cannot help but sin because that's your nature. Your nature will always sin. Even when you're trying to do something good, it will come out as sin because it is from the old nature. And your old nature is always sin. When you're born again, you have a new nature. And that is who you are now. But in this world that we live in, we still have the flesh. The flesh is the tendency to continue to do the things that you did when you had the old nature. So you don't have an old nature and a new nature in that sense. You have a new nature that is from God, and it deals with this old flesh that still wants to do the things that it did under the old nature. The reason I ask is there's someone who teach, you have two natures, and the one you feed and you're for the story. Right. That's important. So you're not a schizophrenic personality. You don't have two natures at the same time. You have a new nature that desires to be holy and righteous, desires to follow God, desires to do the things. And with the new nature, you're burdened with the sin that you commit in that nature. Like Paul said in Romans chapter 7, the things I would desire to do in my nature, I find myself doing the opposite, and it burdens me. I I hate my sin. And that's what happens. You, You have a nature that wants to be righteous and should not practice the desire to do unrighteousness. That's why 1 John is very clear It says, if you're born of God, you cannot sin. And what he means by that is in that new nature, you cannot sin out of that nature. If you are obeying the Spirit of God and walking in the Spirit and flowing out of that new nature, you will not be sinning. You will be doing things that are right. But if you let this flesh take over, then you sin out of that flesh. Does that make sense? Everybody clear on that? 
You don't have two natures. You had an old nature, and now you have a new nature, but you still have the old flesh. And the flesh causes you to want to do things that are not in sync with your new nature. Okay. So, as we go forward in this, and we start talking about now, what Jesus is talking to His disciples about is where they're going with this new ministry that He's been commissioned to them. But the idea of love flows out of that new nature. So, all those who are born of God have the nature of God, and the nature of God is love. If you read through the book of 1 John, it's very clear. No one who says, I am born of God, hates God. The love of God comes with a new nature, and you can't say that you love God if you don't love God's people. You can't say that you love God if you don't love God's Word, if you don't love the things of God, if you don't love the church of God, if you don't love, if you don't love what God loves, then how can you say you love God? And so that's, that's the test of whether you're born of God. If you're born of God, then you have a desire and a love for the things of God, and the thing that is paramount in this age is the church and the body of Christ that we are all a part of. So if you don't love the body of Christ, you don't like to be together with the body of Christ, and you don't like to worship with the body of Christ, and you don't like the things of the, of the body of Christ, you don't like to come together and be with the body of Christ, then First John would say, are you truly born of God? Because if you are, you will love God. And so the key that Jesus is saying here, the commandment is to allow the, what is real in you, allow what is the nature that is within you, the love that flows from God through that new nature, allow that to be evident in you. If it's not evident in you, you're violating the commandment of God to be obedient to the Spirit of God in leading you down this road of the Christian life. Okay? So if you have the nature of God in you, you will have the desire to love, and that love will be evident. And so that is the key evidence to the world as we go forward in the church age is that the world sees that we love one another. Now, in specific, in this passage, he's talking to these disciples that are going to be the apostles. And he's telling the disciples, you have to set the example of loving one another. So as they go forth as the apostles, it is imperative that these apostles love one another and show that love as they plant churches and as they start churches and as they grow with other disciples These disciples that are coming to Christ must see in these apostles the love of Christ for one another. And that's what he says. It's a commandment. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus is fixing to lay down his life for them. And therefore, he calls them friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, when he says that, it's not that if you'll... This is the same thing with a lot of things that we do. You don't... You have to obey the commandments of God. But obeying the commandments of God doesn't make you godly. It is having a heart for the things of God that makes you godly. And out of that heart that desires the things of God flows the obedience to the commands. Just like when the command is to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ. That is a command. Is it, can you do that in your flesh? No, you cannot believe the gospel. You cannot obey the gospel in your flesh. You have to be born again. And so what happens when you're born again is that you have the nature of God. Does the nature of God in you, can it not obey the command to believe in God? It's impossible. So if you have been born of God, it is impossible for you not to believe in God. And so all you need to know is the truth that you will respond to. So when we preach the gospel, it is not to convince people to be saved. When we preach the gospel, it is to allow those people who have been born of the Spirit of God to respond in truth from their heart to the gospel message. And therefore, faith is infused with the new birth, and then out of that new birth comes an obedience to the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That word is rima, which means that it empowers the action because it is from God. So God empowers the action by giving you birth and giving you the, the, the ability to believe because of the new nature that's in you. And so that new nature cannot help but respond to the gospel as it hears the gospel, having been born of the Spirit. So we're not convincing people to believe. 
We're preaching the gospel so that those who are being transformed in their heart and their nature by the Spirit of God can respond to the gospel. And they will. When Jesus was on the earth and he was preaching and he was walking around and he was doing these things, he never tried to convince people to follow him. He laid it out there. And just like the rich young ruler who wanted to go to heaven, he wanted to be a follower of Jesus, but he couldn't because his heart was tied to his money. His heart was, his heart was revealed when Jesus said, go and sell all that you got and give it to the poor. Selling what you've got and giving to the poor doesn't cause you to be righteous, doesn't cause you to be saved. It gives an indication of where your heart is. And do you have a new heart? Do you have a new nature? No, he didn't. So he couldn't, even though he might want to go to heaven. And there's a lot of people, if you ask them if they want to go to heaven, they want to go to heaven. But if you command them to obey the gospel and believe in Lord Jesus Christ and surrender their life to them, that's too much. Don't ask me to do that. Just ask me to say a prayer and get my ticket to heaven and I'm fine. But don't ask me to follow Jesus. Don't ask me to be a Christian. Don't ask me to live like this because it's against my nature. And it will always be against So people are glad to be religious because that's part of the human nature. The human nature, the fallen nature, desires to be religious and desires for people to look, look upon them and think they are good people. But when you're commanded to obey the gospel and follow Jesus Christ, that's too much. And they can't because it's impossible for the old man to follow Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in a minute when we get into this next section about why the world hates you. And so we'll talk about that in a minute. So when he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And there's two things here. First of all, he's saying, now because you are not a slave because you know what I'm doing. A slave just obeys blindly. A slave, the... the the slave owner tells the slave what to do, and he does it because he's a slave. He has to do what he has to do. But Jesus said there's, things are different now. He says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. I have included you in all of my understanding of what the Father has given to me to do. You are included in all the revelation that I'm giving you. You're including with all the inner things of my Father. You are including in all that's going on. You're no, you're no longer a slave. You're a friend. You have a new relationship with me, and that relationship is with my Father. And that's what 1 John is talking about in 1 John chapter 1 when he's talking about this fellowship and this relationship that comes from Jesus Christ, he says in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 John, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, and what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and these things we write that our joy may be made complete. We are no longer obeying the things of God out of commandment and out of servitude. We're obeying the commands of God as a son, as one related to the Father, as one that's included in all of the revelations of God given to us. And so Jesus is making known to them what His Father's desires are so that they can obey the commandments out of a heart that is in relationship with God, is in fellowship with God. So it flows out of, a, out of a participation in the eternal life. That's what that word fellowship means. It means participation. We have participated in the eternal life that comes from the Father through Jesus Christ by the re regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We have participated in that oneness with God. Now we have a life with God, and so now we obey the things of God out of a heart that desires to be pleasing to God, a heart that has the same nature of God, a heart that does the same things as God. So it's totally different now. So the command that I give you to obey and to follow me and to love one another is, is one not out of servitude, but is out of relationship. And you have the same heart that the Father has given to you through me, through the Spirit of God. And now, therefore, love one another. And if you, because if you do that, then you demonstrate that you truly are a child of God. You truly are born of God. You truly are my disciples. So that's what he said. So that is what identifies us as disciples of Christ if we love one another and we obey His commandments. If you say you love God and you don't obey His commandments, you don't understand. You cannot be born of God and not desire to obey His commandments. It comes with the territory. If you have the heart of God in you, you desire to obey His commandments. Now, with our flesh, we don't do that perfectly or 
always the right way, but we have the desire to, to be obedient. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Now, when he says that, he, that you did not choose me and appoint you, he's talking about them being appointed to the ministry of apostleship. Look in Acts chapter 10. And we're going to go through several passages in Acts a little bit later when we talk about being witnesses. But in Acts chapter 10, verse 40 and 41, it says, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from dead, and he ordered us to preach the, to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. So he is, cho- they were chosen, they were cho- chosen before the foundation of the world to this ministry of apostleship. And then they were picked by Jesus Christ to be his disciples so that he could pour into them his teaching and his life and the understanding that comes from the Father about what all this was about so that they could be the apostles to lay the foundational truths for the church to be built upon. Now that was not going to happen until they were filled with the Spirit at at Pentecost, but he has told them that they have been chosen and appointed to this position as apostles. As apostles as apostles to do the work. And those that do the work who are abiding in Christ will bear fruit. Now, what is the fruit of the apostles? Right. The fruit of the apostles is the outflowing of the gospel to the nations, and it is manifested in the form of churches and people coming to Christ and starting churches. So they laid the foundation for this ministry going forward to the whole nation, to the whole world of building churches that are filled with people that are called of God, that are born of God, and now are being built, they are building up on that foundation of this new entity called the church. It's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. It's different than the Old Testament saints. It's different than the tribulation saints and the millennial saints. This is the bride of Christ. This is the body of Christ to do this unique work of building a church. And so the fruit that says here, and your fruit should remain, or remain to win. To the rapture of the church. Till Christ comes back for his church, their fruit is going to be continuing. And that means that until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, in Romans chapter 11, the fullness of Gentiles means that there is an exact number that is ordained by God to be a part of the bride or the body of Christ, the church, the true church. There's a set number of people that are ordained and called and elected to be a part of this unique organism. And this continuation of the fruit gathering or the fruit building of the apostolic work of laying the foundation to bring in the saints that are a part of this age, a part of this church, will continue until it is fulfilled, until it is finished, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then that work will be completed. And so all the work that goes into building the church and laying the foundation of the church and incorporating the giftedness of the Spirit of God in all the people that are part of this church to do the work of discipleship and do the work of growing up the church until that church is complete and full and ready to be raptured or redeemed or uh, glorified at at the coming of Christ for His saints, that's when their fruit will be finished. Their work will be finished. So he's, he's talking in a particular way to his disciples, and his disciples, who are going to be the apostles, are going to have the fruit of having the bride of Christ fulfilled and finished and completed at his coming. Now, they lay the foundation, and we're still building on that foundation, so their fruit is still remaining and still being brought in, and still the work is still being done by us today as those that are extensions of the apostolic work. Now, when he says this, and whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Don't take that verse out of context. He is talking specifically about the, the work of laying the foundation, of building the church, and bringing in the church. So in whatever, whatever is necessary to accomplish the work, ask the Father for that 
power, that requirements or whatever that is needed for that work, ask and he will give whatever is necessary. Whatever you need to accomplish the work of apostleship, he will get, he will grant it to you. So in the context, this is <coughs> a specific request to finish the work, to do the work that he were they're called to do. And so that's very important that you don't just take a scripture out of context and try to make it say something that you want it to say, that feeds on the flesh or the, the, the ambitions of the flesh or whatever. And some people have done that in many times. And he finishes up <clears throat> by saying, this I command you, that you love one another. Now this was the first command to be together for the gospel. And you know, there's that conference that they have, together for the gospel, and what they're saying is all these different groups or different parts of the Protestant church will come together for the, for the good of the gospel. Well, what he's telling his, his apostles is that you love one another so that there's nothing that can hinder the work, so that you, you apostles will be all in together for the good of the gospel by loving one another in this way and setting an example for the church. So whether it's Peter and Paul setting aside their differences, whatever is required of the apostles to continue the work of laying the foundation, they've got to do the work and they can't let this anything hinder them and they've got to love one another in a way that sets the example for the church to go forward, to be together in their ministry of, of loving them, loving God and loving each other and doing the work that they're called to do. Any questions? And it went along with the, his sermon today. It, it, uh, it lays out very nicely the, you know, the, the role of the church. I mean, building because it's more to be brought in for the glory of for glorifying God through the church. Yes. And... <clears throat> We have to be careful because there's there in the especially in the 20th century, uh, there was a great push for evangelistic appeal that did not acknowledge the sovereignty of God in that, and it became the work of the church to bring in the, the saints instead of the work of the church to disciple the saints that are being brought in by the Spirit. And so, if if the gospel message changes to make it where man does something to be saved instead of identifying those whom the Spirit of God is bringing to life, then it changes the whole narrative of how we preach the gospel. And so we have to be careful that we're, our, our preaching of the gospel is not, our convincing of people to, to believe is not the, the goal or not the means by which people are saved. It is our understanding that, that the Spirit of God brings life to individuals and our preaching of the gospel identifies those who are being brought in. And we and we're he and he chose the method of bringing in the lost. And the method is preaching the gospel. So the Spirit of God takes the gospel message, and he imparts it into a life as he's transformed that life to where they can respond to the gospel. So that's the goal. Now the second passage, the second portion of this chapter here that we're getting into, <clears throat> and I don't have my watch, so y'all raise your hand if I'm getting late. Um, verse eighteen. It says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you, not for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin." He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness of me and you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, so here Jesus is telling his disciples uh, the reality of the fact is the world's going to hate you. The world's going to hate you. Why does the world hate Christians? Because it 
devil's the god of this world. Yes, def definitely the devil's the god of this world. And those who are of this world are controlled by the devil and his mindset, the world system, is contrary to righteousness. But specifically, if you'll understand that it's the name of Jesus that bears the brunt of the persecution. People will accept that you believe in God. People will accept that you believe in this religion or that religion. You believe in this God or that God. Religion is okay in some circles. It doesn't mean that religious people aren't persecuted because of religion. They are. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is the name of Jesus. If you take the name of Jesus, the world will hate you. And so that's what he's talking about. So first of all, the world system, darkness hates the light. Now in John chapter 3, he's already stated that from the beginning when he started his ministry. In chapter, John chapter 3, he is teaching about the new birth to, after he speaks to Nicodemus. Um, and then he talks about those who are born again. And again, the context of John 3.16 is his teaching to Nicodemus about the new birth. So for God so loved the world that those who, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those who believe in him are those who are born of him. And that's the whole context of this passage. And so, but then he goes down to verse 19 and says, this is the judgment that the light is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to light lest his deeds should be exposed. Now the reason people hate the truth or hate God or hate Jesus Christ or hate the church is that we, we are preaching or teaching the truth and they don't want to know the truth. When, when people talk about the, the push toward evolution, what was, the, what was the purpose behind coming up with the philosophy of evolution? Alternative to theism. Alternative to a God that would hold you accountable. So if there is a creator that did create you, then that creator has control or has sway or has determination over you. And that creator can lay demands upon you. If you're created by a God, then that God can cause you to be under His commands or under His judgment. If there is no God, if there is no Creator, and we are our own creation, then there's no one going to hold us accountable, and we can do what we choose to do, and we can live the way we choose to live without any fear of retribution or condemnation. And so that is the basis for all things that deny the, the truth of the gospel or the truth of the created God, in any form or fashion, it's always man trying to do away with the accountability or the understanding that they're going to be accountable for their actions and their sin. Because they love sin and they love darkness and they hate the light. So that's what he established first thing is that men hate the light because it exposes their sin. And it, the reason they hate that is because it exposes they're going to be accountable for that sin. And then in, chapter, in, John, in 1 John chapter 3, after he's talking about the fact that no one born of God practices sin because his seed buys in him, in verse 9, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. In verse 10, by this the children of the devil and the children of the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain killed Abel because Abel obeyed God and demonstrated the righteousness of faith by believing God and offering a sacrifice that was under the consideration that God, that granted, that God granted out of a heart that was wanting and to please God, that was born of God, Cain's heart was evil. He didn't want to obey God. He wanted God to recognize him for his own accomplishments in his own self. And so it angered him that Abel was considered by God to be faithful and righteous, and Cain was not. If you go back and you read the account, Cain was angry because God did not accept his offering and he accepted Abel's offering. And so he slew him. 
that is the beginning of this warfare or this opposition between the evil one and the believing one or the righteous one. And so it started with Cain. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Because if you are righteous like Abel was righteous, then the world is unrighteous like Cain is unrighteous. And anyone that is unrighteous does not want their deeds, their evil deeds exposed by your righteousness. And therefore, they will hate you and the world has hated you. Now, there's something interesting I want to point out here in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent out His disciples and He gave them commands to go out into into the world or go out into the nations, I mean, to the, to the, the area of Israel. He says in verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So he's talking about, he's sending out the disciples as a means of teaching them what it's going to be like to be his disciples. Okay? So he gets down there into, the ver- into verse, um, verse 20. It says, For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now here he's talking about them in a sense of what's going to be coming after they receive the Spirit of God. But in this, particular, in this particular sense, He gave them special enabling of the Spirit. This is not the indwelling of the Spirit, but this is special enabling of the Spirit to do the work that He has commissioned them to do. That's like it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the, the prophets and the people of God were given special endowment with the Spirit of God to do a special work. Here He gives them a special, a special endowment of the Spirit of God to do this particular work of sending them out at this particular time. But then he says in verse 21, And brother will deliver brother to death, and his father his, his child, and children will raise up, rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who endured to the end who will be saved. Now was that true at that time for these disciples that went out? No, it was not. So in this passage, even though he quotes this passage like this as he's sending them out, This is not for them at this time to be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled at a future time. When is that? Tribulation. Tribulation. Go to Matthew 24. He he repeats this in Matthew 24, the same passage. And it's very important that you understand in the context of his saying that the world will hate you. In Matthew chapter 24, we're talking about the tribulation time. We're talking about the seven years is coming of judgment. And we're talking about what's going to happen during that seven years. And so he says, uh, when they're asking him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus says in verse 4 of Matthew 24, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name and saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom in various places. There will be famine and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in, all, in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. So when he's talking about this passage in chapter 10, when he's sending these 12, these disciples out, then he is using that time frame of their commissioning to give understanding about what's going to happen during the time of the tribulation. And what is, what is, what is the parallel here? What is, what is he talking about? At, what's going to happen at the end of the, at the time of the tribulation that is going to be in line with this persecution, and this level of, of people hating those in the name of Christ. Yes, at the, end of the, at the end of this age, during the time of the tribulation, you will have the epitome of Antichrist message, where it will go to the extreme. In other words, during this time, when you have the church I believe the church will not be here, but he will call out 144,000 Jews to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And during this time, anyone that names the name of Christ will be killed if they're found out. 
their brothers will turn their brothers in. <coughs> the second half of the tribulation will be the time when the, the Satan is cast down to earth. You have the false prophet that is brought up that will join with the Antichrist, and they will form the unholy trinity. And this, whole, this unholy trinity, their whole purpose is to kill anyone, destroy anyone that names the name of Christ. During the tribulation, there will be only two possibilities. In the first half of the tribulation, you will accept the, the one world religious system that is anti-Christian, or you will accept the teaching of the 144,000, which is Jesus is the Christ, the coming King. There's only two options. If you don't accept Jesus, if you accept Jesus as, as the coming Christ, you're going to be persecuted by this religious system and they will kill you. In the second half of the tribulation, it is the religious system is destroyed and all you have is the unholy trinity. And if you do not take the mark of the beast and worship the Antichrist as the Antichrist, as the, as the God of your life, then he will kill you and he will cut you off. So during this time, it will be increased in this sense of the world will hate you and all nations will hate you. If you name the name of Christ, it will be, it will be paramount hatred of the world system. So we're building up to that. And the whole, net, the whole church history has been, there have been periods of people hating the church and hating Christians. And there have been times when, when you're always going to be persecuted because the world system does not love Christ. But when Jesus is talking about this thing, when all the nations are going to hate you and they're going to turn you over and you're going to be killed for money, that's going to happen true to the disciples themselves. But for the church in whole, it's going to be increased, or for the people of God in, in whole, it's going to be increased dramatically when we get to the end. And this, that's what he's talking about there in that passage in chapter 10 is this passage about the hating is going to be increased at the time of the end prior to the Jesus Christ coming back and setting up his kingdom. So persecution will be the norm because of the name of Jesus. And in verse 22 of, of John 15, go back to John 15. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. What's he talking about there? They're sinners. What's he talking about? What sin is he talking about? Particularly. Yes? Rejecting the Messiah. So what happened was when Jesus came and started preaching, what did the Pharisees do? They sinned by rejecting Jesus Christ. And as leaders of the Jews, they led the Jews into a total national rejection of Jesus Christ. They committed an unpardonable sin having been demonstrated by the Spirit of God that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the, the very King that they had been promised, they rejected Him on the basis that the works and the signs and the miracles that were done through Him, they attributed to Satan, and they rejected Him, and they sinned against God because they committed a sin of rejecting the very Son of God, the very King of Israel, the very Messiah that was coming to them. And unless Jesus had come and preached and, and taught the things he did, they wouldn't have had that sin because they wouldn't have had that opportunity to reject him. So that's what he's talking about. So they, if he had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. So when Jesus was speaking to them righteousness and speaking to them truth, they were given the opportunity to reject that and sin against that because he presented it to them. And if he had not done that at that time, they would not have been guilty of that particular sin. Doesn't mean that they're not sinners. Doesn't mean that they're not under condemnation, it just means that they would not have had that particular sin against them. So he says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but they now have both seen and hated me and my father's well. But they have done this in order that the word might be fulfilled that is written in the law, they hated me without a cause. So what they did when Pilate put Jesus on trial, what did he, what did he acknowledge? This man has done nothing wrong. There is nothing I can charge this man with. He is, he is not guilty. He has done nothing wrong. So they, they rejected him. They crucified him without a cause because he had no cause. He was righteous. He's the righteous Lamb of God. He was the righteous Savior of the world. He came as the, the last Adam to redeem the first, first Adam's sin. 
And so he had no sin. He was perfect. He, they hated him without a cause because they were of the devil. And just like they hated him without a cause, they will hate you without a cause. Because, not because you're perfect, but because you represent the perfect one. And that's why they're going to hate you. Now, the last thing, and we'll close with this. It says, when the helper comes, and we're going to talk about next week, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the, ch- to the church and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the unbelievers. Now, did Jesus have a ministry to his disciples and a ministry to the unbelievers? All right. What was his ministry to the disciples? If he's going to send another helper to do what he was doing with his disciples when he was there, when, <coughs> when Jesus was with his disciples, what was he doing for them? If the Holy Spirit's going to come and help them, how is the Holy Spirit going to help them in place of Jesus? He was teaching them. He was preparing them. He was ministering to them. He was encouraging them. He was praying for them. He was doing all the things alongside them to, to, to elevate them in their walk with Him. Okay, so that's what the Spirit, the Helper's going to come and do the same thing to them when He's gone. So what did Jesus do to the world? That didn't receive him. Heal the sick. Well, he presented the truth of God, so therefore he convinced them that he was the righteous one. He convinced them of the truth of God, and he, they rejected what he was sharing with them. So he exposed them to be those that are unbelievers, that are ungodly, and that are wanting to kill him because they don't want to hear the truth. So what he did was he exposed who they are as those who are unrighteous. So the same thing is going to happen with the Holy Spirit in the next chapter when we talk about that. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to do the same thing that the ministry of Jesus did when he was here. He's going to expose those that are unrighteous, and he's going to help those that are righteous. Okay, so he says here that, the, that when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you, from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, Jesus is t- talking about that the goal and the, the purpose of the church is to bear witness of the truth about Jesus Christ, about the truth about righteousness and salvation. And so as the apostles begin their ministry, their ministry is all about bearing witness of Jesus Christ. Now, he starts out in Acts chapter 1 by telling them that they're going to be his witnesses. And that's right before he ascends into heaven. He says in verse 8 of chapter 1, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So he says, you're going to be my witnesses. And then in Acts chapter 2, Verse 32 at Pentecost, when when Peter is speaking of the resurrection of Christ, he says in verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So they had to be, to be apostles, they had to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. That was one of the, 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 the attributes or the signs that you were a true apostle is that you witnessed and you were with Christ in his resurrected body. And then in chapter 5 of Acts, verse 32, it says, verse 31, it says, He is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince, as a savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are, are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, so when he says that the Spirit of God is going to bear witness of me, how does the Spirit of God bear witness of Jesus Christ? By enabling them to be able to do Right. He bears witness first through the apostles and through the believers that come to, to fruition by the apostles. So through the preaching and the teaching of Christian people, he bears, we bear witness to the resurrection of Christ, to the, to the perfection of Christ, to the salvation of Christ and through His Word. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth through the Word of God 
and through the, the witnesses or the believers that are the church that follow the, the foundation building of the apostles. And so, therefore, he says, the, the apostles have been with him from the beginning, the beginning of his ministry. He called them out, and he has been ministering to them, and they're going to bear witness to all the things that he said through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, he told them in Acts chapter 1 to wait in Jerusalem until the receiving of the Holy Spirit and said that at that point you will do what? You will receive power? Is that what he said? Okay, so without the Spirit of God, they have no power to be his witnesses in the sense that it says you shall receive power <coughs> when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, what does the Spirit of God in you enable you to do that you couldn't do without the Spirit of God? Understand God's Word, for one. Understand God's Word, because we're, we're going to talk about that next week when he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. The power to obey and to overcome sin. That is the key. For the apostles to be true witnesses and to have a powerful witness to the Jews. What happened at Pentecost when Peter stood up? He was a fisherman. He was unlearned. He was just an average Joe. He had no background. He had no teaching. He had no training. And he stood up at Pentecost and spoke powerfully the testimony and the truth of the revelation of God to the point where these people said, who are these men? These are unlearned men. What are they doing? They're teaching, they're, they're speaking powerfully. In other words, through the gifting of the Holy Spirit, they had the ability to proclaim the truth in a powerful way, and they had the ability to overcome their sinful flesh and live out the truth of them being ambassadors, witnesses for Christ. What happened to the apostles when Jesus was crucified? I mean, when he was arrested? Did they have any power? No, they had no power. They fled. They were frightful. They were scared. They, they had no ability in themselves to stand up for God, even though Peter said, I'll, I'll fight for it. They didn't because they had no power. But when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, it completely changed the whole dynamics. Because now, even though they were already born of God at the time that they fled and hid from, they were born of God, they had a nature within them that wanted to do what's right, but they were fearful. They were still in the flesh. They had no power. But when the Spirit of God came upon them and indwelled them, and then they were filled with the Spirit, they had the power to do what God had called them to do. And in the moment of their time when they were to be exhibiting as the, the disciples of Christ, the apostles of Christ, the witnesses of Christ, they were gifted by the Spirit of God to be apostles. And that gifting came out as they proclaimed and gave new revelation, and they proclaimed the truth of God, and they spoke in languages they didn't know as a sign that this was something that God was doing, where He was speaking now through the Gentiles, or speaking down through other languages. He was no longer speaking through the Jewish people. He was speaking through His church. And the apostles represented that, and they were filled with the Spirit, and therefore we are witnesses of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God is bearing witness to the reality and the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ through us, the saints of God.